Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. There are, as we learned in primary school, five senses. We can see, we can hear, we can taste, we can touch, we can smell. Five ways to directly perceive the world around us. Five ways to experience reality. Five ways to make our way through the complexity all around us and absorb the outer world into our own inner worlds. Interesting, and this is just a passing observation, John's Gospel at various points engages all five. It is a multi-sensory Gospel. Do you remember, for example, the wedding feast in chapter 2 when Jesus turns water into wine and when the master of the feast tastes it, he can't believe how good it is. John says when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is delicious. Now smell. Another one of the signs. Jesus at the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. Four days dead, remember? John chapter 11. Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, says to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odour. For he's been dead four days. If you value your nose, don't open it. He'll stink. See, that's two of the five senses straight up. Interesting, though, they are kind of the two incidental senses, aren't they? The ones you can live without and still more or less make your way in the world, maybe without quite so much enjoyment, but functionally. Uh, Years ago, our friend Ian fell off a ladder and suffered a head injury. And you can look at him and talk to him. You wouldn't pick anything wrong. It's just that he hasn't tasted or smelled anything for the last 20 years. Uh, Disappointing when it comes to red wine or a steak. But they're not the, the major building blocks of our perception. In fact, the philosopher Immanuel Kant called smell our most dispensable sense. While Plato and Aristotle both argued that vision is our noblest sense, the king of the senses. Seeing for yourself is king when it comes to the scientific method. We say, don't we, I'll believe it when I see it. Followed closely, I guess, by touching and measuring Which brings us then this morning to the patron saint of sceptics in John's Gospel, Thomas the Twin, more famously known as Doubting Thomas, who says more or less exactly that. John's description of the first resurrection appearances, you'll notice, is, is just full of the language of seeing and touching as well. Uh, Last time we are in the first half of John chapter 20, and you'll remember Mary saw 
that the stone had been rolled from the tomb. And then first John comes and looks into the tomb and he sees the linen strips that have been wrapped around the body, lying limp. Then Peter goes all the way in and he sees the same. Then John comes fully inside the tomb and we're told he saw and believed. Mary then, the first to actually encounter Jesus himself, saw Jesus standing. But in the early morning light at first doesn't realise it's him until he speaks and then she grabs onto him and clings to him. And she goes back to the others with the message, I have seen the Lord. Then that same evening as we pick up in today's passage, here are the rest of the disciples locked in a room for fear of the Jews, obviously still far from convinced there's been a resurrection. But in spite of the locked doors, John says Jesus comes and stands among them in verse 19 and says, Peace be with you. And then he shows them his still damaged body. It's a full visual demonstration. When he'd said this, when he'd said, Peace be with you, he he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see, seeing is believing. And maybe if you're the kind of person who struggles with faith, whichever side of the the faith line you find yourself on, you you might be a believer who's niggled by doubt or a a sceptic, you've never been prepared to step over that line. Either way, maybe you think, if only I could have been there in the room to see for myself. And for sure, for these 10 in the room, because as we'll see in a moment, there's one who wasn't with them, but for the 10 who are there, it is absolutely a clarifying moment. Jesus has actually commissioned them before in the upper room the night before he was crucified. He told them that he'd be sending them out. But now it's with a whole new clarity which is the point of verses 21 and 22 as Jesus breathes the Spirit on them. The Spirit, who he's already said, will guard and empower their words and then commissions them as witnesses of his resurrected authority with a message that you'll notice is all about the forgiveness of sins. Their message, their apostolic authority He's going to hold the very keys to heaven. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. And having seen him, they believe. Which then becomes the basis, and and, and you see this right through the rest of the New Testament, of their apostolic authority as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Except that Thomas has missed out. Who knows where he's been? A doctor's appointment maybe? A better offer? Maybe just hanging out with his twin brother somewhere? In any case, you'll notice when they see him, the other guys are full of the news. 
Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord with our own eyes. Which for Thomas, who again has gone down in history on the basis of his next remarks as doubting Thomas, isn't enough. Maybe he should have been called scientific Thomas or even reasonable Thomas. Maybe just reasonably sceptical Thomas. Consider his words in verse 25 because in a sense I can easily sympathise. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Seeing and touching for myself. In terms of our own personal epistemology, in terms of how we actually get to know stuff, in terms of how we engage with and assess with what's really real, well, it's only reasonable, isn't it? Except, of course, life just doesn't always work that way, does it? In all kinds of things. Even when I buy 500 grams of butter, I'm usually working on trust rather than scientific measurement. But more especially when it comes to bigger things in life, like whether my wife actually loves me or, or something that happened yesterday or last week or something true that happened in a locked room eight days ago or 2,000 years ago and I wasn't there to see it because I was somewhere else. If you're ever going to believe anything at all and not live life bouncing around being sceptical of absolutely everything, somehow we need to come to terms with how trust actually works. Which is just another word for faith. Taking someone else at their word. But you see, Thomas, for one, isn't buying it. I don't care what you say. I'll never believe until I see and touch and measure for myself. Now, interesting, John's presentation of the resurrected Jesus, his body is fundamentally physical like we are, in that he says he can be seen and prodded and touched, and yet somehow, apparently, he can move through locked doors at will. More than that, he clearly somehow knows what people say and do and most especially is aware of the ultimatum from Thomas, even though he wasn't here, wasn't there in person. It's now eight days later, which puts it this time on a Monday, and again the disciples are together, and again in a locked room, this time Thomas with them, maybe just in case. And suddenly again, there is Jesus with them in the room. The 11 has become 12. And again, he stands among them just like before and he says the same words, peace be with you. Which I think is absolutely one of the logical consequences of the conviction that the resurrection is real, peace. 
There's no real need to lock doors anymore for fear of the Jews. Peace be with you because anything you fear is overturned by the fact that death is no longer final. That there really is justice. That, that victory doesn't always go to the bullies but to the righteous one. Peace. But the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is going to push us further than just psychological comfort in times of distress, which you will see if you follow what happens next with Thomas. Because again, Jesus knows exactly what Thomas has been saying and verse 27, he says to Thomas, okay, put your finger here. See my hands. Come on, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See me, touch me, believe me. Which, of course, Thomas does. And you might say, well, with all the evidence in front of his eyes, with his five first-hand senses at work, seeing him standing there, poking the, the fleshy holes where the nails were, believing is easy. Which I think is a fair point. But also you'll notice believing is costly because Thomas at this point knows that everything changes. If you're still trying to put together the claims being made for Jesus in the New Testament, if you're perhaps of the view that you know, the idea of the divinity of Jesus came along later and was somehow invented by the church, I'd argue instead that the resurrection is the starting point that brings the historical church into existence. Verse 28, Thomas answers him, My Lord and my God. Which I suspect is an absolutely reasonable conclusion to draw from the fact that this Jesus really is back from the dead. So he really is the word of God become flesh. really is everything he ever claimed to be. And for that reason, he's actually worthy of our loyal allegiance. More than that, worthy of worship. Interesting to note that while we don't read much more of Thomas in the New Testament, there is a very long historic tradition that he took his apostolic commissioning seriously. From time to time we let out our church building for weddings. Uh, early next year there is a wedding from the Martoma Syrian Church, a church which traces its history back to the island of Malankara on the southwest side of the Indian Peninsula, where they say the Apostle Thomas came with the gospel message of the resurrected Jesus in the year 52 AD and later died there as a martyr. The church of St Thomas is still alive and well and traces its history all the way back. Because you see, Thomas moved from doubter 
to worshipper and from worshipper to messenger in a way that intersects directly with our own real-life history. Just, just think about it. Jesus to Thomas. Thomas on a boat to the coast of India. The first believer there to the next believer to the next. One day, a bunch of them, no doubt, on a plane or a boat to Melbourne and a wedding here in Scots in March next year. What what I'm saying is that is, in a sense, a direct chain of evidence, which is, of course, what they use in court, for instance, or, or working with any other part of history where you physically can't see or hear or taste or touch or smell for yourself where tangible first-hand evidence isn't an option. We're called to exercise the possibility of a different kind of knowing, which comes from trusting in testimony. And interestingly, Jesus himself is aware that before long there will be new generations of people like us who don't get to see firsthand. And he says this, verse 29, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those, in fact, just like us, who need instead to weigh up these words without first-hand sight and rely, in a sense, on the, the seeing and hearing and touching of those who came before and decide whether or not they can actually be trusted, believed. More blessed, says Jesus, are you if you've followed on later. In a sense, it is easier if you're Thomas. His his scepticism was overwhelmed by the first-hand confrontation with Jesus, where we are being called to trust words from the apostles who saw him. And friends, from that point on, with only rare exceptions, that's been the way that it's worked. Blessed are you if you read, hear, weigh, trust. John's book isn't quite finished yet. There's a postscript coming next week in chapter 21. But verses 30 and 31 sound very much like an ending, don't they? Uh, Douglas Lawrence says some of my sermons are a bit like that, lots of good places to stop, and I don't quite. But John says this, and we saw him say something similar in chapter 19, telling us exactly why he's writing. Now, there's nothing manipulative going on. He's completely upfront about it. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Which leaves us this morning with the obvious question. Without seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling firsthand, Can you trust what's been written? 
and so believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. Maybe you'd prefer to see and touch for yourself. But it's not so unusual. We are called to decide things on trust all the time. So more to the point this morning, will you believe? It brings the offer of peace and life. And yet it's costly. It's focus changing. It's direction changing. It is worship changing. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Maybe he's saying the same thing to you this morning. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. 